1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays
2: at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Wall Street trying to end the week on a high note, despite growing calls from Fed officials that a rate policy of higher for longer is here to stay. Call it a streaming success, as Netflix user growth blows by estimates. That stock is surging pre-market, plus we've got a big change in the sweet suite. Another crypto crisis casualty, as yet another major exchange files for bankruptcy protection, plus retail warning signs as shares of Nordstrom sink ahead of the opening bell. We've got the full story on that ahead. And then later on, the house may be bitterly divided, but there's still proof that bipartisanship exists. A closer look at that so-called Bourbon Caucus. Break out the Woodford-Mictors. It's Friday, January 20th, 2023. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Dominic Chu. in for Brian Sullivan today on this Friday. Let's kick off the morning with a check on U.S. equity futures after another losing session for stocks yesterday that saw the Dow and S&P post a third straight day of losses. But for right now... Things are stable. The Dow is implied lower, but just by about 23 points, as you can see here. The S&P is pretty much flat and up 21 implied for the Nasdaq. So again, we're trying to see if we can get some green on the screen here. Specs of it, but it's modest at best. Checking on the bond market right now. Yields are on the move slightly higher, but let's put this in context. We are still well below three and a half for the benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield, 3.43% the last trade there. The benchmark two-year note yield, 4.16%, and the 30-year long bond just a hair below 3.6% at this current stage. Now, in energy, oil prices, I don't know if you have drive a lot, but if you've been at the pump lately, you've seen gasoline prices rising. We see WTI crude U.S. benchmark West Texas intermediate prices back above 80 bucks a barrel, $80.78, up 45 cents. That's roughly one-half of 1%. Similar percentage move for ice Brent crude futures, that's the world benchmark gauge, up 44 cents to $86.60. In cryptocurrencies, it was before the old regime hovering around that 17,000 mark. Now we've been watching between that 20 and 21,000 mark and Bitcoin prices remain there. We're off about three quarters of 1% still though, just a hair below 21,000, 20,959 and change. Ethereum price is $1,552.29. That's down about one third of 1%. Now around the world, it's pretty much green arrows across the board in the Asian trade, despite Japan recording its highest core inflation rate In 41 years, the Nikkei closed up half of 1 percent, the Hang Seng in Hong Kong up nearly 2 percent and three quarters of 1 percent advance for the mainland China Shanghai Composite Index. Now, Europe's trading day is in the early going right now. You can see there pretty much green across the screen as well. A third of a percent gains for the German DAX, the FTSE 100 in the UK up a similar percentage amount and about a half of 1 percent advance for the CAC in France, up about 34 points there. So, again, green in Europe, green in Asia. We'll see what happens here. Let's get to some of this morning's top stories now. Sylvana Hanau is here with those. Good Friday morning, Sylvana.
3: Good Friday morning to you, Dom. Well, shares of Netflix surging ahead of the open. And this after adding millions more subscribers in the fourth quarter than Wall Street expected. Total global paid net subscriber ads... 7.66 million compared to estimates calling for just 4.57 million. This is the first quarter that Netflix's new ad-supported tier has been included in its results since launching back in November. Along with its earnings, Netflix announcing its founder Reed Hastings is giving up his role as co-CEO, but he will stay on as chairman. Ted Sarandos will remain co-CEO with Greg Peters, Formerly, Netflix's chief operating officer will now assume Hastings' co-CEO role. Breaking overnight, crypto broker Genesis filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, making it the latest crypto casualty following the implosion of Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX. Genesis, which is owned by SoftBank Bank Digital Currency Group, owes creditors more than $3 billion, including $900 million to customers of Gemini, the crypto exchange of Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. And the FAA says a third-party contractor is responsible for last week's safety systems outage that grounded all domestic U.S. flights for several hours. The agency, which declined to identify the contractor, says staffers were working on the system when certain files were unintentionally deleted. The FAA says steps have been taken to prevent a similar outage in the future, Dom. Yikes.
2: Thank you very much for those headlines. Back to the broader markets now. Fed officials are getting in their last licks before the central bank begins its traditional pre-meeting quiet period. They go hush at that point. Speaking at an event, though, last night... New York Fed President John Williams, a permanent voting member, says he's encouraged by signs rate hikes are having their desired effect in slowing growth and keeping inflation expectations in check. But there's still a ways to go. Now, that echoes comments yesterday from Fed Vice Chair Lael Brainerd, who says she supports slowing the pace of rate hikes to the more traditional 25 basis points or one quarter of one percent moves at the Fed's next meeting. Brainerd adding the Fed is still, quote unquote, probing for that level of rates that will be adequate enough to tame inflation. So let's discuss this further with Aaron Gibbs, the chief investment officer at Main Street Asset Management. Aaron, uh, there's there's a lot of Fed speak about this, and, and, and it's no surprise. That inflation is a big problem, and it, it affects everybody, disproportionately so middle-income and lower-income Americans. That's the reason why it's a big deal. But you have a lot of CEOs, a lot of banker Wall Street types, saying that maybe inflation has already peaked. So what exactly is the Fed's next move?
4: Well, I think we are going to see much like Wall Street is predicting uh, so that we're going to see a, a, certainly a lower pace. Uh, and, you know, for for those that are saying it's looked like a peak, it has been in a steady decline since June uh, or, or you know, a fairly steady decline. Uh, it's just we can't get it down fast enough is the real issue. Uh, And I think right now we're also struggling with the fears of inflation, which obviously hits Americans in their pocketbook, versus recession, which can also hit Americans very hard. Uh, And so those fears between inflation and recession and interest rates are really what's sort of struggling and keeping this market very focused on the macro effects. Um, rather than fundamentals and what companies are expected to perform over the next few months or even year.
2: Oh, I mean, Aaron, we, we've turned to you in the past uh, a lot over, this, uh, over the last several years to talk about some of those corporate fundamentals, the earnings picture. We're early in the earnings season right now, but things don't look terrible. They're, they're not off to the races by any means whatsoever. But is this a scenario where earnings growth is still at risk? Or are we just talking ourselves into a recession? What are the corporate results looking like right now to you?
4: So certainly, obviously, for fourth quarter, um, they look fine. Uh, But obviously, that's in the past, and we're really concerned about what are they going to do the first two quarters of this year. And right now, the expectations are are really coming down. And that's normal that expectations come down at the beginning of earnings season, but they've really been coming down, uh, and they've dropped to uh, a little over 3%. Uh, for for the entire year, mostly because we have so much pessimism around how companies are basically going to contract, not grow, uh, for the first half of the year. And so that's why there's just a lot of concerns about how hard this recession or if there is a recession, if it's going to be, how long it's going to last, and how the Fed's going to manage to or hopefully be able to pull us out. And so right now, basically, all the hope when it comes to fundamentals is a little bit in the third quarter, but almost all of the growth is expected in the fourth quarter. So right now, Wall Street's just going to say it's going to be really bad for the first three quarters, but we're going to get out of it by the fourth. Uh, and and that's the hope that certainly by the end of the year we'll be somewhere in a, in a much better position and in a very positive place.
2: So so, Aaron, you're you're not the only one who feels that way. That there, there, there seems to be a growing consensus that it's going to be like a tale of two markets. There's a 1H first half of the year and then a 2H you know second half of the year type thing where things get better. With that being said, what exactly is the opportunity? Is it is it here in the U.S. Is it value over growth? Is it tech or is it? Energy? Is it international versus domestic? W- what exactly is the theme here, and how should you, how should you position?
4: Yeah. So right now, I think we're still in this, I think we're going to be in a continually highly macro environment where the broad market and the broad indices are very much dominated around headlines over inflation employment, that type of thing. There are a few industries that really are standouts, just like we had energy last year that really broke the trends. I think there are a few industries this year that are also going to be able to break those trends based off just as exceptional earnings. Um, And one area in particular are resorts, travel, Um, those types of entertainment and leisure companies. They really have stellar outlooks in the U.S. They're expecting about 130% profit growth for the year no quarters of contraction at all. Um, And it has so far been one area that consumers are willing to spend. And on top of that story is European travel and leisure and also luxury brands um, are also been uh, done very, very well since the beginning of the year, have been outperforming their peers. And even though Europe is still expected to grow more slowly than the U.S., there are those pockets that just have Uh, You know, amazing outlooks, very stable earnings have been beating their estimates and are really good plays off of the reopening uh, of China, uh, a stronger euro versus a dollar, just uh, and and just improved expectations for Europe. They were just so dismal uh, and valuations were so low. Uh, That's another thing that's going for them. And I think that's one area to look at for the next six months until we feel really confident about the U.S.
2: All right. There's the trade from Aaron Gibbs at Main Street. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Have a nice weekend, Aaron. When we come back on the show, a possible emerging market breakout is taking shape. Mobius Capital Partners, Mark Mobius, is here to weigh in. Plus, much more on Netflix as it looks to extend its recent stock rally in a very big way this morning. It's up about 5.5% right now. And by the way, it's doubled in price since May of last year. And then later on, down but not out what the new FTX CEO is saying about the future of the exchange as its bankruptcy proceedings continue when they roll on. Very busy hours still ahead when Worldwide, Worldwide Exchange returns after this break.
5: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones,
2: Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your big money movers. First up are shares of Nordstrom. They're sinking after the retailer reported a three and a half percent drop in net sales during the all important holiday shopping season compared to the same time last year. The department store chain also cutting its earnings and profit margin expectations for the full fiscal year. Those shares down four and a half percent pre-market. Now, right now. Bringing down fellow retail giants, you got Macy's and Kohl's as well. You can see there all of them in the pre-market trade or lower on the day. Now, Wayfair, the online retailer reportedly preparing to lay off over 1,000 workers or more than 5% of its workforce. That's according to a report from the Wall Street Journal. This would be the company's second round of layoffs in six months and joins the growing list of tech-oriented companies slashing jobs amid signs of slower consumer spending. Those Wayfair shares off about one and a quarter percent pre-market. And then lastly, Eli Lilly. The FDA is rejecting the company's proposed new Alzheimer's disease treatment due to insufficient trial data. The FDA telling Eli Lilly it would need to submit data on patients who were exposed to the drug for at least 12 months. The setback could delay a potential commercial introduction of that highly anticipated drug by at least several months if the agency eventually decides to approve it. Eli Lilly shares right now down about two and a third percent pre-market. Well, still on deck for the show, Mark Mobius is standing by talking a possible emerging market breakout taking shape where he's seeing opportunity. He would know he's watched those emerging markets for years. We've got all that when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break.
1: From their innovative practice facility
2: Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. While benchmark U.S. averages have faced growing pressure after a solid start to the year, one area of the market has not. We're talking about emerging markets and the iShares MSCI index up nearly 19% in the past three months and breaking above its 200-day moving average or longer-term trend line. One of the biggest bull cases this year is China and its reopening plays after three years of its controversial zero-COVID lockdown policy. But skeptics do remain. Cities out there with a note this morning saying China reopening ripple effect will be much more muted than in previous economic cycles, mostly due to the consumer-led nature of the recovery versus ones driven by government stimulus and investment in the past. Now, joining me now is Mobius Capital Partners founder Mark Mobius, a man who's watched emerging markets for years You look young, but you've been doing this for decades, Mark, and and I've been following along closely for the entire ride. Now, take us through the thesis right now. What is the bull case for why emerging markets could be the place to be in 2023?
6: Well, first of all, you must remember the emerging markets index is 30 percent China. So with the recovery of China, that gives a big boost to the index. Of course, uh, when China was out of the picture and was going down, a lot of people were very unhappy about emerging markets generally. But now with China coming in, uh, it looks very good. But then, don't forget, other emerging markets are now recovering strongly. India is doing very well, and a lot of these other markets are uh, benefiting from a strengthening currency. It's interesting to note that the renminbi, for example, is up something like 7%. Uh, Taiwan dollar is up. Thai baht is up. All these currencies are up. And One of the worrying things, I think, for the U.S. is a weakening dollar, generally a weakening dollar index, which with a big deficit, I think is something to watch. So by diversifying into emerging markets, a lot of uh, investors will, will, I think, do fairly well because of this change, and
2: particularly because of the currency change that we're seeing taking place. All right, Mark, I'm going to get to the currency in just a moment here, but but. You mentioned this idea that the emerging markets are so heavily weighted towards China. There are some of those out there, investors who believe that the best days of that hyper China growth story are behind it, that it's now the world's second biggest economy, that the so-called easy money has already been made in China, and that it's going to look much more like a developed market going forward. Is that the case in your mind? Is China still going to I mean, it will not grow at the pace it did over the last 40 years but can it still be a growth mechanism for emerging markets?
6: It's not going to be growing at the rate that it was growing 10 years ago. I mean, we had 10% growth 10 years ago. That's those days are over. For the simple reason that the economy is so big. The Chinese economy is like the US economy. With the US to grow at 3% is a big big deal. And that'll happen in China as well. But then on an individual company basis, there'll be tremendous opportunities because you are now seeing a big revival of tech investment because of the U.S. restrictions. The Chinese government is putting a lot of emphasis on tech. So there's going to be definitely opportunities in China, just like in the U.S. There's so many great opportunities in the U.S. market, and you're going see that in China. But more importantly, other markets like India, like Brazil, uh, like Malaysia, like Indonesia, like Thailand, these uh, markets will do very well. And don't forget Taiwan still is doing very well.
2: Now, now you mentioned that dollar story before. It, It also plays out because of the nature of the commodity demand that's needed for growth in many of these countries, specifically oil and gas, at least for the time being. When you talk about the bull case for these economies, their currency strengthening versus the U.S. dollar is part of it. As the U.S. dollar weakens, it makes commodities cheaper on a relative basis as well. So exactly where do you see those commodity markets really powering growth. Which parts of the market there? You mentioned a lot of names out there. India, Malaysia, Indonesia. What exactly is the play for the coming 12 months?
6: Well, most of these emerging markets are imports. The big markets are importing uh, raw materials like oil, particularly oil. China is a big importer. India is importing. The good news for India and China now is they're getting cheap oil from Russia and they're paying in their own currency. By the way, that's a very interesting Side light to this whole situation because if they're not paying in U.S. dollar, it explains why the U.S. dollar is getting weaker uh, globally. But uh, most of these markets are going to benefit from a stronger currency because they'll be
2: able to import uh, these commodities, particularly oil, uh, at a lower price. And before we let you go, we've got a few moments left here. When you take a look at the outlook for some of these currencies out there, there's a case right now that Europe is going to be better off than the U.S. on a relative basis. Weather has a lot to do with that. If the weather stays better, the economy can do better, that sort of thing. Do you believe that Europe may be a better place to invest in the U.S. going forward as well? I don't think so. I think
6: it's a little bit too early to, to head uh, for Europe. I'm not saying that the markets are not going to do uh, better than they've been doing. But I think uh, because of the Ukraine situation, the uncertainty and all the problems that they're facing, I think it means that the markets
2: won't be as good as you can see in some of these emerging countries. Mark Mobius, a man who knows global markets. Thank you very much, Mr. Mobius. Have a nice weekend, sir. Thank you. All right, let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the latest. Good Friday morning, Francis.
0: Happy Friday to you, Dom. Good morning. We start with a week after a special counsel that was named to investigate his handling of classified materials found at a private office and his Delaware home. Now President Biden has broken his silence. While touring storm damage in California, Mr. Biden said he has no regrets about how he has dealt with the situation. The president has faced growing criticism from Republicans and his own allies. An advisor to the White House Counsel's office said officials are trying to explain what happened without compromising the investigation. The cross-country storm that drenched the West is leaving a trail of destruction as it marches across the U.S. In Nebraska, drivers were stranded in whiteout conditions with almost two feet of snow in some areas. And in Colorado, semi-trucks piling up on treacherous highways caused numerous crashes. Meanwhile, further south, a tornado ripping through Columbia County, Arkansas tearing down power lines and uprooting trees. And today, the storm will reach the Northeast, where 10 million are under winter alerts. The world is mourning the loss of one of rock music's greatest. David Crosby has died at the age of
6: 81.
0: David Crosby died Thursday after battling a long illness. A founder of the Byrds and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. He was twice inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Bandmate Stephen Stills called Crosby's harmonic sensibilities nothing short of genius. Done. What an era in music. Singer songwriter, they played instruments, harmonized, did everything really, really good going to miss that sound. Looking towards the skies and the Southern Cross as well right
2: now. Mm-hmm. Francis Rivera, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Ahead on the show, the crypto contagion growing in the wake of the FTX implosion. CNBC team coverage is coming up on deck. We'll be right back after this break. The new year shine for stocks is starting to fade a bit. The major indices poised to snap their two-week winning streak, barring a major turnaround in today's session. Netflix, though, regaining some of its sparkle as the streaming giant blows past expectations on subscriber numbers, sending those shares higher. We'll dig into those results. And the latest shoe to drop in the fallout of FTX, as lending firm Genesis now formally files for bankruptcy. It's Friday, January 20th, you are watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chu, in for Brian Sullivan, and a special welcome to all those listening on Sirius XM Channel 112. It is just right now on the nose at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Time here on the East Coast. Here's how stock futures are looking. We're fairly modest in these moves right now. The Dow's implied lower by just about 20 points, the S&P up by 2, and the Nasdaq up by 35. So again, modest moves. Let's also hit oil prices as well. They are bid this morning. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI crude prices up 22 cents or about one quarter of 1%, $80.55, $86.36 for iceprint crude futures, the world benchmark gauge. That's up about 20 cents a barrel, up about one quarter of 1% as well. We've also got breaking news this morning and a market flash on Alphabet. The parent company of Google and YouTube just announcing a short time ago that it is cutting 12,000 jobs, more than 6% of its global workforce. Now, CEO Sundar Pichai telling employees in an email the cuts will affect jobs globally and across the entire company, writing that he takes, quote-unquote, full responsibility for the decisions that led us here. Those Alphabet shares right now up about 1% in the pre-market trade. Joining me now is James Chuckmak, partner at Clockwise Capital. James, it's good to see you here. We just got this breaking news. This is a scenario that is maybe not at all unexpected. It is very sad mm-hmm. anytime there are job cuts. But Alphabet is not alone here, and it's almost as if the environment has given many of these tech firms cover to cut jobs because all their peers are doing it. Will you expect more in the coming days and weeks?
7: Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, the way we look at it is that these companies, these tech companies made kind of the same mistakes that investors did uh, last year. So when you had this huge pull forward in demand because of COVID, you know, accruing to these tech companies, uh, that growth was extrapolated on a go forward basis, which is why you had such disappointments in 2022, because they under earned relative to those expectations that you saw in 20. Uh, that accrued in 2021. And I think that the mistake that companies made is the same thing in the sense that they extrapolated that growth and overhired in anticipation of the persistence of that growth and in order to normalize back to the original growth curves in not only revenue but also uh, labor uh, with their respective companies, they have um, to, to reduce the labor force. And uh, it's an unfortunate byproduct of of COVID, uh, where, um, you know, we're seeing these layoffs happen now. Um, but at the end of the day, we, this is also what well, the silver lining is, that it's a more of a return to normalcy in terms of estimates as well as ad cap growth.
2: Well, you know, w- w- what's crazy about this is, again, it sounds very perverse, but y- you and I both know it, that oftentimes when companies, tech or otherwise, announce large-scale job cuts to save costs, the stock prices mm-hmm. go up. Because investors cheer it as a as a cost yeah. discipline thing for CEOs in the C suite. Is is yeah. this kind of move, are these kinds of moves that we've seen from the likes of Amazon, from Microsoft, from now Alphabet and others, is it enough to make that tech turnaround trade take shape in twenty twenty three? Is that the catalyst it needs after a dismal twenty twenty two?
7: Well I wouldn't say the the job cuts are, are the catalyst, but I think the, the catalyst is that Um, You know, our our headline for our 2023 Outlook piece was that bad news will be bad news again and good news will be good news again. Um, Because as estimates... So what happened was, you know, you had this growth curve expectations and then when everything was pulled forward, everything came up here. But in order to come back onto the original curve, you had to perform below the curve. And that's what happened with all these tech companies in 2022 with the terrible numbers that you saw. I mean, that's why Netflix, you know, was able to grow... 18 million subs in uh, 2021 and only 9 million in 2022. And and now that estimates have kind of reset, we're back on that or nearly back on that original growth curve. So the companies should be able to deliver more upside to estimates than we've seen as of late. And that should help not only drive estimates higher, uh, but also multiples higher uh, from the depressed levels that they're at now. So no, we are incrementally bullish every single day on the NASDAQ components you know relative to the Dow and P.
2: Now James I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Netflix trade because uh, I want you to just hang out here because those shares right now are, are up big ahead of the opening bell now this is after adding as you said millions of subscribers more subscribers in the fourth quarter than Wall Street analysts were looking for total global paid net subscriber ads. million new ads compared to estimates that we're calling for about 4.57 million. So that's a lot. That's a big beat right now. Along with its earnings, Netflix announcing its founder, Reed Hastings, is giving up his role as co-CEO, but will stay on as executive chairman. Ted Sarandos will remain the co-CEO of the company alongside Greg Peters. Now, who was formerly Netflix's chief operating officer and chief of product, he's going to now assume Hastings co-CEO role. So let's again. Bring this into the discussion, James, about mm-hmm. the Netflix story specifically. Is this sure. the right time for Reed Hastings to step away from the day-to-day management of Netflix? And is the subscriber numbers that we saw, are they a bullish indicator for the strategy that Netflix has embarked on with ad-supported tiers and the cracking down on password sharing?
7: Um, I, would, I wouldn't say it's the subscriber growth numbers are you know, a a function of the strategy as much as to say that, you know, expectations were depressed. Um, Yes, their strategy and their international growth efforts and their international content proliferation uh, continues to impress. And obviously, introducing a new ad tier um, and and password um, crackdown does provide upside risk to estimates. But no, I think at the end of the day, it's Scale matters the most, you know in the eyes of consumers, we view net uh, content as a hub and spoke uh, for consumers with Netflix being the hub and every all the other content providers being the spokes and the spokes are churnable and cancelable, but the hub is not you know so that's kind of our our investment case around netflix and and at the same time, we do have valuation support that you did not before, and as it relates to the the CEO change, I do think it's the right time because. You know, he's been there a very long time, he's a founder, obviously, and we've finally been through, we've cycled through the, uh, the impact of COVID on the numbers for the most part, so now it's just execution uh, at this point. And I, and I think it's a brilliant move to have um, the content guy and the operational guy as co-CEOs because both of them are equally important and, uh, and tenured at the firm, and, and both of them understand how much scale advantages matter. Uh, in this world. And uh, we think it's just going to be increasingly challenging uh, for the competitors out there. And, and Netflix um, is, is in a very good position. And if we can finally say we have valuation support on a stock, which you know we didn't have, um, you know for as long as I can remember.
2: I mean, significant news, of course, last night with Netflix and those numbers. And again, significant news on a sadder front this morning for shares of Alphabet and Google's parent company there with the job cuts. James Chakmak, thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. Thank you. All right. To a developing story now in crypto broker, Genesis officially now filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. It marks the latest crypto casualty in the wake of the implosion of Sam Bankman, fried SBF's FTX exchange. And that failed firm is due back in bankruptcy court later on today where fireworks could erupt as those proceedings roll on. We have team coverage of this major story this morning at Crypto. Mackenzie Sagalos is tracking the latest on the Genesis story, and Eamon Javers is following the FTX proceedings. Uh, Mac, we'll start with you. Can you walk us through that filing and just how significant it is to Barry Silbert's digital currency group? Barry Silbert has been one of the faces of cryptocurrency, going all the way back to the infancy of that product.
8: Hey, good morning, Dom. So Genesis filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy last night came as a surprise to virtually no one. It's had withdrawals halted since November, which is also back when The Wall Street Journal reported that Genesis was looking for an emergency bailout of $1 billion and could not find any takers. But even though we knew it was coming, it's still a significant hit to Barry Silbert's crypto empire. Now, in terms of the filing that went up on the court docket late last night, We're specifically talking about the crypto lending business at Genesis. The company's derivatives and spot trading business will continue unhindered, as will Genesis Global Trading. The company listed over 100,000 creditors with Gemini at the top of that list. It also had aggregate liabilities, potentially as high as $11 billion. This puts Genesis alongside other fallen crypto exchanges and lenders, including BlockFi, FTX, Celsius and Voyager. In terms of how we got here now, even though things went south for Genesis in November, problems at the company really go back to the spring and the now bankrupt crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital. Genesis had loaned them over $2.3 billion worth of assets, and that's part of why the Genesis failure is so hard on its parent company, Digital Currency Group. DCG was forced to take over its billion dollar liability stemming from the 3AC collapse, so DCG itself now owes a growing debt of more than $3 billion in this sort of endless knock-on contagion effect. It's also worth noting, Dom, that CoinDesk, another DCG property, is reportedly looking for a buyer, and there are reports that DCG has suspended dividends this week in an apparent effort to save cash.
2: Okay, so so this is important because you mentioned Gemini, right? And, And that's the Winklevoss brothers who run Gemini, and Barry Silbert at DCG, they've been locked in this very heated exchange for weeks now. Gemini is listed as the top unsecured creditor, as you point out. Now we heard from Cameron Winklevoss last night where does gemini fit into the story here why is exactly is there so much animosity right now growing between silbert and the Winkleby?
8: yeah it's a great question so gemini is a huge part of this genesis bankruptcy last night's filing lists the 50 largest unsecured creditors and gemini is at the top of that list by a mile 765.9 million dollars more than 300 million dollars up from the next creditor on the list And Gemini was linked to Genesis through an offering called Earn, this nearly two-year-old product from Gemini that promoted returns of up to 8% on customer deposits. With Earn, Gemini loaned client money to Genesis for placement across various crypto trading desks and borrowers. And for a while, the partnership worked out great. But when Genesis halted withdrawals in November, it forced Gemini to quickly follow suit with its earned product. And now Gemini has more than 340,000 very unhappy customers of its own. And since then, the Winklevoss brothers and Barry Silbert have been locked in this heated and at times very public fight. So as you said, Cameron Winklevoss was quick to respond to the bankruptcy news tweeting last night that Silbert and DCG, quote, continue to refuse to offer creditors a fair deal. He added that they had been preparing to take direct legal action against Barry, DCG and others. So certainly not mincing words here, Dom.
2: This is just a vicious cycle at this point right now. Okay, Mackenzie Scalos, Mac, thank you very much for that. Now let's move on to the FTX side of things and the bankruptcy hearing there and expectations of an explosive proceeding in a Delaware courtroom later on today. Eamon Javers has more on that story. Eamon.
9: Yeah, good morning to you, Don. We saw this dramatic late filing yesterday by FTX's former compliance officer alleging conflicts of interest and wrongdoing by Sullivan and Cromwell. That's the law firm that's now representing FTX in this bankruptcy proceeding here in Wilmington, Delaware. In a 17-page document, Daniel Friedberg alleges that Sullivan and Cromwell overbilled FTX by millions of dollars, manipulated the bankruptcy filing to generate fees for the firm, made knowingly false statements and aided and abetted securities fraud. Now, he also alleges that Sullivan and Cromwell installed John Ray as the new CEO of the firm in order to have a supporter who was in charge leading the company. The judge was expected today to rule on whether the firm can proceed as FTX's counsel, but it's not clear whether he's going to be able to do that with these significant allegations that just dropped late yesterday afternoon. FTX's new CEO, John Ray, did support Sullivan and Cromwell in a filing of his own this week, saying the firm has played an integral role uh, In the post bankruptcy period, in helping to recover money for the customers. Now, other filings made this week revealed the pay scale for some of those Sullivan and Cromwell attorneys who are working on this bankruptcy proceeding, showing four attorneys are billing more than $1,000 an hour and three attorneys are billing more than $2,000 an hour as this process goes forward. All of this comes after a day in which Ray said he's open to the idea now of reopening the FTX.com crypto exchange, telling the Wall Street Journal that everything is on the table. Don, back over to you. So many players and so many dynamics developing
2: there. Eamon Javars tracking all of them from Wilmington. Thank you very much. We'll see you later on. Coming up on the show yep. here, call it bipartisan, over a bo- bipartisanship over a bottle. Ilan Moy joins us. With the special congressional caucus united by one particular spirit in a truly American way. Well, what Exchange is back in a moment. All right, welcome back to the show. The ball is in Congress's court now to get a deal done to avoid a potential default by the U.S. government on its debts with a new deadline of June 5th to do so, as lawmakers work to reach an agreement. Now, one particular caucus is shining a light on the potential for bipartisanship. Ilan Moy joins us now with a closer look at the so-called Bourbon Caucus. Very truly American in terms of spirits, Ilan. So what does this mean, and can we have some optimism or confidence in this, Elon?
10: Yeah, Dom, good morning. If there is one thing that can bring lawmakers in Washington together, it is a stiff drink. Bourbon is the only spirit that Congress has designated as a distinctive American product, and that made it a target during the trade wars. Back in 2018, the European Union slapped a 25 percent tariff on American whiskey in retribution for U.S. tariffs on foreign steel and aluminum. Now, the countries agreed to suspend those tariffs last year, but they're scheduled to snap back in 2024. So the bipartisan Bourbon Caucus is pushing now to put an end to them permanently.
9: All bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. And we we think bourbon uh, is, is of course, the best of all whiskeys. That means that public policy actually matters.
10: According to the Distilled Spirits Council, bourbon exports dropped 18 percent while the tariffs were in place. Once they were lifted, sales spiked 23 percent. But let's be honest, Dom, it's not just the data that brings Republicans and Democrats to the table. It is the drink.
1: With the bourbon caucus, um, we can be pretty popular because, you know, you go to these caucus meetings, they talk policy. We get to drink our policy.
10: Now, Tom, all of the harsh rhetoric and political polarization today makes it easy to get cynical about Washington, especially when we talk about the fight over the debt ceiling. But at least inside the Bourbon Caucus, the proof is that the glass is always half full.
2: OK, so the, the, the glass is half full. I, I get that this is very tilted towards. And of course, you have two lawmakers from the state of Kentucky talking bourbon over there right now. This is very much about bourbon and tariffs. Is there any way, though, that a, that a spirit of bipartisanship, can the Bourbon Caucus become contagious, I guess? Can, can we expect some kind of a move? Can, can we expect any kind of growth from the Bourbon Caucus and its talks and its efforts to kind of permeate through the rest of Congress right now with regard to the bigger topics on, on debt and, 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 and budgets and everything else?
10: Look, these are the kinds of things that bring people together and get them to the table. These two lawmakers couldn't be more different. Uh, the, one of the co-chairs is Representative McGarvey, who is Kentucky's lone Democratic representative. The other is Representative Andy Barr, who's a member of the Republican Study Caucus, part of the conservative flank of the GOP. But these two guys have known each other for a very long time through Kentucky state politics, and they both invoked uh, the legendary politician, Henry Clay, also from Kentucky, former Speaker of the House, who said that bourbon can help lubricate the wheels of government. So compromise starts with just simply talking to each other. And what better way to do that than over a glass of bourbon?
2: All right. Elon. at some point, you and I are going to have to meet up in New Orleans at some <laughs> point, and we'll share a bourbon. Uh, we'll do it at some point in some point in the future, I'm sure. Elon, thank you very much for everything. I'm in, Dom. All right. On deck for the show. Stocks set to close out what's been a rocky week. Sylvia Jablonski lays out why renewed volatility can be an opportunity. Yes, an opportunity for investors. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. Six stories you may have missed as we close in on the 6 a.m. Eastern Time Hour. So here we go. Alphabet is announcing just a short time ago that it's cutting 12,000 jobs, more than 6% of its global workforce. Those shares are actually up on that news. Shares of Costco are rising after the company said its board reauthorized a stock buyback program of up to $4 billion. The board is also declaring a quarterly cash dividend, though shares up 1% pre-market. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon's pay for 2022 remaining unchanged at just around $34.5 million. The majority of the money coming from performance-based pay tied to stock. Now, T-Mobile is revealing a hacker stole data for 37 million customers and its accounts earlier this month, but did not include in that stolen information, payment information or passwords. Nordstrom shares are falling after the department store chain posted week holiday sales and slashed guidance for the fiscal year. That news is also having ripple effects across other retailers like Macy's and Kohl's as well. They're all down pre-market. And Eli Lilly saying the FDA has rejected accelerated approval of its experimental Alzheimer's drug due to insufficient trial data from patients who were treated for at least a year. Eli Lilly share is currently down about two and a half percent pre-market. Let's turn back now to the broader markets and the trading day ahead and bring in Sylvia Jablonski, the co-founder and CEO and CIO of Defiance ETFs. They do a lot of thematic investing type ETFs. Sylvia, thank you very much for being here. Let's talk about the market right now as it's shaping up. It's been volatile. Tech, media, telecom earnings have now kicked off and take center stage. What do you think about the stuff that we got from Netflix last night and now the breaking news this morning that now Alphabet, the parent company of Google, will cut 12,000 jobs? What exactly is the outlook for tech?
5: Good morning, Dom. Well, as we know, tech was absolutely hammered last year. Right. And, And I think that this is the year that things start to turn around so netflix earnings were really excellent right it's it's something that the market took to very favorably you saw those increase subscribers and it tells us that the company has some profit and revenue potential in the future in terms of how they're going to turn their business around and i suspect that that's going to bleed into other technology companies so for example google cutting jobs well cutting six percent of their workforce actually saves a lot of money for google google so as much as it's not you know favorable for the people who have essentially lost their jobs it is potentially something that could be positive looking forward to, to Google's corporate earnings and, and their bottom line. So to answer your question, though, I don't think tech is going anywhere. And I love tech at these prices. I love these multiples. I love that some of these names like Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, um, IBM are, are well, not so much IBM because they've been performing. But the the few aforementioned are 20 to 40 percent off of their highs. I think that all of them are part of the fourth industrial revolution you know, artificial intelligence, 5G, quantum computing. We need tech to essentially move forward. And I like it at these prices where it's been beaten down.
2: There's no doubt we need technology. But Sylvia, over the last several months and quarters, it hasn't been a focus so much tilted towards fundamentals or outlook for these companies. We know we need them. It has been about their valuations giving a rising interest rate and rising inflationary environment. Those higher rates have taken a huge bite out of valuations. So how can you make that call If you don't look at the Fed and rates as well, what do you think there?
5: Well, I think, you know, there's sort of two ways to look at that. Number one, the Fed is closer to being finished than they are to sort of starting. And at some point when that, you know, becomes overheated, there's a chance that the Fed pulls back on it. But number two, these companies are are actually well positioned. You know, they have strong balance sheets. They have good profit margins. They have innovation. They have you know forward-looking technologies that will be coming into the market. So I think a lot of it is honestly psychological right now. I think that you know higher rates and inflation definitely impacted tax bottom line. But where valuations are now, where they've cut costs, where they've created new efficiencies, you know how we need to sort of replace. Uh, workers, how we need to digitalize factories to replace them with the labor market issues. These technologies, companies are going to play a big part and you will start seeing them generate profits again.
2: Okay, And in 10 seconds, your favorite sector for 2023.
5: Uh, I like hydrogen stocks. I think it's the energy of the future. 12% of our electricity will come from it. And it's um, becoming more cost efficient and being used globally as a fuel source for energy.
2: All right, the call from Sylvia hydrogen, clean energy. Thank you very much, Sylvia. Have a nice weekend. We'll see you soon.
5: Thank you, Dom.
2: Have- that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawkbox comes up next with the market coverage. It's stable for pre markets right now. We'll see if it stays that way. We'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You
1: can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only.